Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this hour. Thank you for your blessings, your presence among us. Thank you especially that we were able to hear your word taught this morning, and we pray your continued blessing on your word as it is preached. Bless John as he preaches from your word. May you give him power from on high and direct him with your spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning to everyone. Welcome. Welcome especially the visitors. We're glad you can fill some of the empty spots left by our missing people. I want to continue this morning in this little series that I've had the last couple times, uh, focusing on women that are mentioned in the Bible. And as you might remember, out of the roughly 3,000 people that are named in the Bible, only about 100 of those are women. So kind of a disproportionate uh, amount there. And only about 1% of the recorded words spoken by people in the Bible were spoken by women. So last time I spoke about women who use their God-given gift of influence for good, for bad, some different ones there. And today I want to look at a few of the women directly in line with the birth of Jesus. And if you read the title, I don't know if it made sense or not, um, I, we all know that the Messiah had only one mother, but there were also quite a number <clears throat> through history that could claim him as their great-great-great-grandson. So if you would allow me today, I want to look at all of them as his mothers in the sense that God picked each of them for the special purpose of carrying the, the lineage that would one day bring God's Son into this world as a human baby. So looking at all the, the ones that we know of, not all of them, back through history and uh, looking at them as, as mothers in the sense of the Messiah coming eventually. And they are quite a diverse group, at least the ones that we know about. And like I said, I won't try and cover them all today. But a few things I want you to keep in mind as we look at these. <clears throat> First of all, I don't think any of them except Mary really knew that they were in line for the Messiah. And the exception might be Eve. Um, she had, well, we'll look at that in a little bit here. And Mary only knew after the angel came and told her what was happening. Uh, the rest, I don't think, had any idea. Secondly, they came from very, very different backgrounds. And thirdly, many of them were far from perfect. Now, none of them or us are perfect, but some of them were, um, by our standards, much further from perfect than others. And we'll look at some of those as well. Yet God used them all for a purpose. In fact, I think he intentionally chose to use a wide variety of women to show that his plan can include anyone, uh, not just those that came from the right kind of families, but he included those that came from the wrong kind of families as well. So once again, um, as most of the lists here do, uh, begins with Eve. To her was the promise first given of the coming Messiah. In Genesis 3, we find God administering judgments immediately after Adam and Eve had fallen to the serpent's uh, temptations. And to the serpent, God cursed to a life of slithering on the ground, eating dust, and being hated by man and animal alike. It's an interesting little side note there. Uh, God actually cursed serpents 
um, to not be liked by man and animals. That's not, that is almost a, uh, a supernatural dislike, not just a natural dislike of, of serpents. Um, so I want to read uh, Genesis chapter 3, breaking in at verse 14. So God talking here, like I said, right after the, the temptation, talking to the serpent, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your faith you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. So almost in the same breath that God curses the serpent, pronounces the life of sorrow and pain for Eve, he also promises a future descendant of Eve, her seed, who would one day put an end to the serpent's power. There in verse 15, it's not real plain, but that's what he is saying there. So while pronouncing a future physical death for Adam and Eve, he was also promising a future that would live on through their children. And one day a promise that death would also be conquered through one of their descendants. Now, did they fully understand this at the time? Probably not. Um, but Adam did understand enough that in verse 20, he called Eve the mother of all living, which would include um, a little over 50 generations later, the promised Messiah that was spoken about there in verse 15. So that was the first, the first, yes, Eve was, a, was the mother of all living, but she was also the first mother of the coming Messiah many, many generations later. The next lady is Noah's wife. Now, unfortunately, we don't know much about her at all. She's mentioned a few times. We're not given her name. We're not given anything she said. Uh, we can only assume she must have been a rather committed wife to stand by her husband as he endured 120 years of ridicule, building this massive boat in preparation for rain. Uh, two words that they probably were not familiar with, either boat or rain. Um, certainly hadn't seen rain before, probably had some boats on some small lakes and stuff. But the idea of a flood, of rain, was something totally out of it, and um, she stood by him. I'm going to assume that probably the project of building the ark occupied most of her husband's time and attention, and knowing how us husbands can be sometimes, um, how focused was Noah on his honey-do list that she had for him. I can imagine he might have ignored it, especially if he knew it was all going to wash away soon anyway. What's the point of fixing the windows? Um, so I assume it took some extra patience on her part to, to live with him. But apparently she did believe as he did, because together they with uh, their three sons and their wives, we don't know if they had more, but at least three of their sons and wives, entered the ark and became the only humans to survive the flood. And so the promise of Messiah continued through Noah's wife, through her daughter-in-law, Shem's wife, another lady we know almost nothing about, 
another nine generations of unnamed mothers until we reach Abraham. Now, Abraham had a granddaughter-in-law, Leah. She was the sister of Rachel, the wife of Jacob, and we find her story in Genesis 29. Now, Leah finds herself with two men who are best described as schemers, her father and her husband. And today we might have different terms for them. I thought, you know, wheeler dealers, you know, some other very unflattering term. Um, Both her husband and her her father were not uh, necessarily the most honest men. Uh, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, had conspired together to steal the birthright from Jacob's older brother, Esau, and it rightfully belonged to him. And they worked up a plan, you can read about that, to steal that birthright and give Jacob the rights of the oldest son. And this, of course, did not please Esau. And so Jacob wisely left town, again, following his mother's advice, and this time to find a wife from his uncle Laban's family, approximately 400 miles away, which back then was quite a distance, uh, sufficiently far away from Esau. And one needs only a, a brief look at his mother, Rebecca, to see that that's where Jacob learned the art of deception. Um, Rebecca, by the way, was also a mother in line for the Messiah. And she was handpicked by God for Isaac. Remember, Isaac sent his servant, and God showed him which one he should choose. And now here is Rebecca deceiving that husband um, that she was given by God anyway. And so Jacob traveled to his uncle's place, where he met a man that was equally as slippery as he was. And the last half of Genesis 30 recounts the ever-changing wage arrangements between Laban and Jacob. Um, They each tried to outsmart the other, get the best deal. Uh, And it's kind of interesting to read through that. And the things that they did, I'm not sure, make any kind of scientific sense. But they were always trying to outsmart the other one. And so Jacob... Uh, moved out there, and he was smitten by Laban's younger daughter, and he first learned of Laban's deception the morning after his wedding. So if we would turn to um, Genesis 29, verse 15, we're going to read a few verses there. Genesis 29:15. Then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And, Jacob, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as he made. So it came to pass the morning, and behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel I served you? 
Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for service, which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled the week, and so he gave his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went to Leah, and, also, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. So I don't know of too many fathers who would switch sisters on their son-in-laws uh, just to get another seven years of work out of him, and that's about as low as it gets. Um, I tell my daughters that their husband's boyfriend needs to work seven years of cutting wood for me, but that's, we're, we're not going to do any switching here. Um, this, is, this is just pretty, pretty low down to do this. And so Leah found herself married to a man who rather loved her sister. And if you can imagine that, um, obviously Leah knew what was going on, and she had no choice. She was forced into that. And so most of the, her married life became a competition um, between her and her sister to see who could win their husband's favor. And she never really did gain Jacob's favor to the extent that Rachel did. And yet God blessed her almost unequally over Rachel. And if we study the names of her sons, they reflect her trust, her commitment in God, even if her husband did not prefer her. So from Rachel came Joseph. Um, he later saved the family from starvation by bringing them to Egypt. And Rachel's second son was Benjamin, from whom eventually came Saul, the first king of Israel. But from Leah came Judah, and Judah was the one in line for Jesus. And so Leah, though unloved by her husband, was chosen by God to fill her place as a mother for the coming Messiah. Now the story continues, but doesn't really improve. <clears throat> it's found in Genesis 38. Judah then married a Canaanite woman, and they had three sons. And the first son married a lady named Tamar. And we aren't told why, but apparently that son was so wicked that God ended his life. And as followed their tradition back then, if there were no sons born to um, the lady, the widow was then passed on to the second son. And they as well had no children, primarily because the second son's selfishness in knowing that any sons that they have would be the eldest son's heir. They'd be considered the heirs of the older brother. And so they had no children as well. And God, again, was so upset with him that he ended his life as well. And so this left Judah's third and much younger son, who custom required, would also be given to Tamar as a husband when he got old enough. Now Judah must have considered Tamar to be bad luck by then. He already lost two sons to her. And so he didn't want to risk losing a third son, and so that marriage never happened. And in time, Tamar became tired of waiting. She had no one to support her as a widow. Um, yes, she was living in the household, but there really was no future in that took matters in her own hands, tricked Judah, became pregnant with twins by her father-in-law. And so Perez and Zerah were born to a lady who, if you think about it, not totally unlike Abraham's wife Sarah, grew tired of waiting on God and attempted to secure her future by her own methods. And God showed again that while he did not approve of her actions, he was able to use them, and even including the results of them in his continuing plan for the coming Messiah. So Perez found himself directly in line as an ancestor of Jesus, and I doubt that he or his mother Tamar uh, knew this during their lifetimes, and it was probably only many years later after the birth of Christ 
that this story gained any significance when it was learned that it was part of Jesus' lineage. I'm doubtful that this was a, a major headline until they realized, hey, that was part of the whole uh, plan back then. And then at that point, um, we have a recording of what happened here. So they, very, very interesting uh, scenario there. Certainly less than ideal, uh, but God also included that here. Now, two more unlikely women to enter the picture about a half a dozen generations later, and time passes, Judah becomes a tribe, not just a person, and the story of Joseph happens, Jacob takes his family to Egypt to avoid starvation from a famine, they grow from a family into a nation, and 400 years later, God's finally ready to lead them to the land that he promised to Abraham many, many years ago. And as they work their way in this new land, they encounter much resistance from the locals, uh, fortified cities that have to be overcome, and one such city was Jericho. If you would turn with me to Joshua 2. Joshua 2, I'm just going to read the, um, I guess it's the whole chapter here. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have, brought, have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your, ho- your house. They have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out which was obviously a lie. When the men went, where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them by the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to Jordan, to the forge, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to, to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, who you, who you utterly destroyed. Excuse me. As soon as we heard these things, our heart melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered to her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be, when the Lord has given us this land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless, when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window, through which you let us down, unless you bring your father, mother, brothers, and your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. Whosoever is with you in the, in the house, 
His blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell your, this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain, stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. The two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. When they came to the Jordan, the, the Joshua, the son of Nun, and told them all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord had delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Now this is a very familiar story. We all know this story. I want to look at a few things in here that I, I feel are significant. Uh, the first is who Rahab was in the setting that she lived. Now, obviously, her profession was not one that pleased God. God had forbidden this type of thing among his people. In fact, if we go back to the story of Tamar, Judah had threatened to have her burned to death because he re until he realized he was the one responsible, because Tamar did the same kind of thing. So this and other means of death were punishment for prostitution under God's law. And as such, these types of women were usually the outcasts of society. They operated on the fringes of society, and they were outcasts. <clears throat> However, in a heathen city, such as Jericho, uh, things were different. And I don't know all of this for a fact, but it's quite possible that Rahab was accepted and possibly even respected as a business lady who ran a very successful inn. Um, she may have even worked her trade in the temples, as such practices were very common, part of heathen worship back then. And we don't know, but it may answer the question as to why the two spies went to her house. Possibly they simply went to an inn, and that's what they found there. Well, I also want to draw your attention to what she had to say about their God, concerning their God. Um, if we look through verses 8 through 13, um, she had a pretty good knowledge of what had happened, um, what God had done for them, I'm sure... This made you know, front-page headlines, uh, this advancing Israelites and all that was happening there. I'm sure that was the, the, uh, the news of the hour at that, at that point. Um, and including in verse 11 then, she also has a very good understanding of who God is. She says, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now that's quite a statement coming from a lady like that. Um, to, to acknowledge who God was and his um, supremacy above everything else, all other gods, including her own. And she proves her faith by choosing to side with the true God of Israel rather than with the many gods that she had known all her life. And she sends the spies on their way, promises them safety, and as a signal hangs a scarlet cord in the window. Now that scarlet cord is often viewed as a symbol of Jesus' blood being salvation, from destruction. I believe that's very fitting. I believe that's a, an excellent uh, comparison there. <clears throat> in more modern times, um, a red signal of some kind is, was sometimes used to indicate this type of a lady. And she being open for business was often a red signal of some kind with a light or something. And I wasn't able to verify this, but I did kind of wonder, uh, did her scarlet cord in a window also serve the same purpose back then? I don't know. But if so, isn't it interesting that God viewed that as her signal of faith in him and in his mercy to save her and her family? And a picture of God meeting her where she was, uh, using that, um, meeting her where she was at that point in life and honoring her first steps toward him. So her life was spared. 
Uh, some feel she later married one of the spies that she saved. I don't know. It can't be confirmed. But we do know that she became the mother of Boaz, who married Ruth, who we want to look at next here. So the book of Ruth opens with a famine. Uh, now, famines were much more common in those days because the difficulty of transporting uh, sufficient quantities of food from one area to the other, and they also had a much more limited means of preserving food for the future. So a famine could be quite local. Um, they could be starving here, and 100 miles away they had plenty of food, and they had a very difficult time, no trains, no semis, to, to even out the food supply. And so in Ruth, we see the family of Elimelech, Elimelech and Naomi, Naomi, sorry, and their two sons uh, made a rather apparently unwise choice of moving to the neighboring country of Moab. Now, the move itself probably seemed necessary. I mean, they were starving. And the move itself, I think, was okay. But then it appears they kind of settled in there. And their sons even married the local wives. And although there were situations in the Old Testament where the Israelites married foreigners, we think of Moses, married a Midianite lady. God did frown upon the whole idea of intermarrying with the neighboring um, nations, primarily because it seemed quite inevitable that the foreigners brought along their, foreign, their heathen gods and introduced them to their new husband and wife. And too often it seemed that the new and the strange uh, drew the Israelites away from their true God. And so whether the reason that the three men died was God's judgment or not, we don't know. But the three men did die in an apparently relatively short uh, time. And so Ruth is left with a choice here. And Ruth chapter 1, uh, breaking in at verse 6. Then she arose, Naomi here, with her daughter-in-law, that daughter-in-laws, or daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So the famine was over. Then she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, Go return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that, you may be, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and, he, and also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her and said, Look, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For whether you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to happen. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop there. Verse 18. So, um, while Ruth was choosing to follow her mother-in-law, I think more importantly, she, like Rahab, was also choosing to follow a new god. And like Rahab, who actually became Ruth's mother-in-law, uh, 
Ruth grew up knowing and fearing the heathen gods and probably living uh, very much in fear. And she saw something different in the God of love versus her gods of death, who Naomi actually mentions, tells her to go back to her gods in verse 15. So in choosing to follow Naomi, she was also choosing to follow the true God. You know the rest of the story? God led her to Boaz, who did not reject her because of her nationality, but instead recognized her true character, and their great-grandson was King David. Now we ask, why did God take this little bunny trail here, as we might say, and include these two foreign, and especially in the case of Rahab, rather ungodly women as mothers to his son? Again, I believe it's simply to show that he does not value or disqualify someone because of their background, their race, or their nationality, but by their faith and commitment and willingness to be used by him. So he looks at their heart and not at the outside. The last woman is Mary, the actual mother of Jesus. Now the Bible records both Mary and Joseph's ancestors, and even though Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, since the lineage always was traced through the father in those days, it was very important that Joseph's ancestors also be correctly traceable uh, back through the generations because, as Luke 3 says, it was supposed that Joseph was Jesus' father. So by that, um, apparently many, many of the people of that day still viewed Joseph as the father, whether literally or figuratively. And so it was important that the royalty come through him, not just through his mother Mary. Mary and Joseph share ancestors uh, back to King David, with Joseph coming through Solomon, while Luke says Mary came through Nathan, uh, Solomon's older brother, uh, making Bathsheba the last mother of both of Jesus' earthly parents. And we know the events uh, surrounding uh, Bathsheba's place uh, in the, in the uh, palace as the mother of the Messiah also were quite scandalous, uh, marring King David's name um, for the rest of his life, while also producing two sons whose family lines both led to Joseph and Mary. I think I have that correct. I'm not much of a genealogy guy, but... I found that kind of interesting. I was not aware of that before. So another clear example of where God works through the sinful choices of people to fulfill his plan in the end. Read just briefly about Mary here, uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that a holy one who is, who is to be born will be called the Son of God, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and is now in the sixth month for, who, for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
So as the mother of Jesus, Mary lived in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, as a young girl in the Old Testament setting, she held almost no social status, and she questioned the angel's promise that she would be highly favored. Now, I've heard it supposed that she and Joseph had studied their respective family trees and realized they were both in line for the coming Messiah and wondered if they might be the parents. Now, I kind of doubt that. Um, neither her nor Joseph would seem to be the kind of people who would dream about something like that. And even if they would have had the resources to study um, their history, which I doubt someone in their social status would have had the resources to study back through the family tree. So I, I don't think this was something they spent any time um, thinking about. Um, but by Mary's responses to the angel, uh, she appears to be a very practical, level-headed young girl. Um, her only question to the angel uh, could have applied to any birth. Well, how is this physically possible? And then when the angel explained that, and then her response was simply one of eager willingness to do as God said, as God was asking of her. Later, at Jesus' birth, when the shepherds told her what the angels had said, and then later on when the boy Jesus told of his conversation with the elders of the temple, we read that she pondered these things in her heart, almost word for word, both places. Um, she, she took what she heard, she pondered them in her heart. So I picture Mary as one who thought deeply, but possibly said little. Her responses to the extreme life, through it, the extremes that life threw at her appear to be largely calm. Um, she is visited by an angel. She's given the promise that she is the mother of the long-promised Messiah. And she has uh, a lonely birth in a faraway place. She flees to Egypt in the middle of the night. And she faces the skepticism, rejection of her peers. You know, a virgin birth, a very likely story, yeah, right, whatever. Um, you know, she faces that rejection her whole life. Uh, she watches as her son quickly becomes wise beyond his years. Um, she has other children as well. And she deals with the challenges that no doubt came from having one child who was perfect while his siblings were not. I mean, that's something you guys deal with. I think my parents might have dealt with that. I'm not sure. Um, but at some point then she lost her husband, um, a man who had stood by her while others rejected her. She experienced what it was felt like for the whole world to hate her son to the point of killing him. And she saw her son rise again and return to his heavenly father. And through this all, she watched, she pondered. And unfortunately, we aren't given a whole lot more insight into her thoughts, so we're kind of left to speculate with what little we are given here. But a, a very interesting, very interesting lady as well there. So there's others we could study as well. We won't today. Um, each has a different story. Each has um, made good choices or bad choices in life. And each were, were used by God, whether they realized it or not at the time. Each was part of his much greater plan. So we look at Eve uh, making a huge mistake, but accepting the consequences and changes that it brought, and maybe in a small way, seeing some hope um, somewhere in the future. Think of Noah's wife, uh, faithfully standing by her crazy husband as he followed God without regard to the scorn of those around him. Of Leah, a wife who was second place, but still found her fulfillment in God. Tamar, forced to make tough decisions when there seemed to be no right choice available. Rahab and Ruth, bravely stepping out, choosing truth over the lies they were living in. And Mary, quietly accepting God's disruptions in her life and accepting his favor when so often it seemed to bring more pain than blessing. So a very diverse group of mothers, handpicked by God,
to bring his son to be our Messiah. With those thoughts, let's stand for prayer. And then remain standing for the closing song as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the personal accounts of people's lives that we are given in your word. Accounts that show that they were imperfect like us. Accounts that tell their failures as well as their victories. Help us to take courage as we face difficulties in life. That we are not asked to be perfect. We are asked simply to follow as you lead us. Guide and direct us as we go from here. Help us be a blessing to those that we meet. And grant us safety until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Errol, you have a song?